0: but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your word, time to dig in, and time to be reminded of what is most important in this life and the life to come. Uh, bless us and instruct us and give us great joy through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This past week, people in Pennsylvania were going crazy because they heard of a deal they couldn't pass up. It was floating around social media. Uh, there was a coupon code uh, that would allow free entrance to anyone who used it into the largest amusement park in Pennsylvania, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, called Hershey Park. And not only would allow them into this great amusement park with roller coasters and slingshot rides and all that other stuff but it would also give them free entrance into the zoo as well as into the local water park and so people were tremendously excited because a single ticket to get into Hershey Park on a single day would be $85 and so all of those families with three plus kids were just overwhelmed with excitement if you could imagine that and they all went online and they entered the coupon code and sure enough they got free entrance into Hershey Park they got a ticket for it but as you can imagine It was too good to be true. It turns out that this special code was given to a little company uh, so that their employees could go on and get tickets and then the company would get charged for the tickets for those families to get in. Well, someone decided that they would put it on social media and so instead of having maybe a dozen people do this, there were hundreds of people signing up to get free entrance into Hershey Park and so they had to void all of the tickets. Maybe you have heard this saying before. See if you can finish this saying. If it's too good to be true, it probably is, right? What about heaven? Heaven sounds a little too good to be true, doesn't it? Heaven is a place where there is complete joy and happiness and delight, complete peace. There's no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, no more death. It sounds amazing. Maybe it's just the construct of people who can't handle the reality of death, right? Maybe it is just too good to be true. That's what Jesus addresses in today's passage. If you would please open up. To Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a red Bible in the seat in front of you and it's page 848 in that red Bible. At this point in the Gospel of Mark, we are in the heart of Passion Week. Jesus has come into Jerusalem through a triumphal entry where hundreds, if not thousands of people welcome him in shouting, Hosanna, Oh, come and save. Jesus cleanses the temple, rebuking the religious leaders who then devote themselves to destroying Jesus. Last week, we saw that they sent to Jesus the Pharisees and the Herodians with the hope of trapping Jesus and discrediting his ministry, and it backfired on them as those who came to question Jesus left marveling at Jesus. This week, they send the Sadducees, another tribe of the Jewish religion, to trap Jesus, and this week, it is pertaining to the issue of the resurrection of heaven and hell, what happens when we die. Now, we'll learn more about the Sadducees in a little bit, but I just briefly want to share with you Acts 23.8 that tells us this. It says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits. But the Pharisees, a different tribe, acknowledges them all. And so here the Sadducees come to Jesus to show him how ridiculous the thought of the resurrection is, how it is so incompatible with the Bible and with even the way the world works. And so let's look together at this carefully crafted question and how Jesus responds to it. So Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. This is God's word. And Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us. In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. In this passage, I want to look at three things regarding the resurrection. First is the denial of the resurrection. Second is the proof of the resurrection. And third is the glory of the resurrection. So the denial, the proof, and the glory of the resurrection. First, the denial of the resurrection. Verse 18, again, the Sadducees came to Jesus, who say there is no resurrection. So let's take a little bit of time and understand who these Sadducees are. Again, they are a tribe or a sect of Judaism. And between them and the Pharisees, they dominated the Jewish religion. They were the two major tribes in Judaism, and they were often at battle with one another. Uh, as far as the Bible is concerned, this is very interesting. This comes up in the, in the message today, but the Sadducees only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament were canon. And that first five books uh, is called the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses, the Torah. Uh, it's called a number of things, but they thought only that was what was authoritative. And because the first five books of Moses were not explicit about the resurrection, they denied the resurrection. Uh, What we'll find out as we go through the passage is that while while the Pentateuch is not explicit about the resurrection, the Pentateuch really doesn't make sense without the resurrection. The Sadducees were primarily a wealthy, academic, elitist, high-class sect of Judaism, Jewish historian Josephus even says that they were unfriendly and unpopular and were often cruel even to one another. They were, for the most part, bitter, angry, snooty, tooty, get off my lawn type of people who did not like what Jesus was saying about the resurrection because it was undermining the way that they were living their life as if there was no resurrection. And so they're trying to trap Jesus, to destroy Jesus. And in verse 18, they continue, they asked him this question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, notice the Sadducees start by going to the Bible. That's a very good move to do, right? And they go to the Pentateuch, they go to the Old Testament, and they are are quoting passages or they're looking to passages from Genesis 38 and Deuteronomy 25, both in the Pentateuch in which it is the obligation of a younger brother to marry the wife of an older brother if he passes away and there are no children to take care of that woman, okay? Now, this might seem unromantic to us at first glance, but it's actually something that's quite beautiful, and you see it through the book of Ruth as Boaz marries Ruth and takes care of Ruth and Naomi. It was a way of God providing for the most vulnerable people in that culture, which were widows, by providing another husband for them. Now, with that said, I'm assuming such a system would make a brother very, very, very critical of whom his older brother marries. But from this law creates this fantastic scenario that the Sadducees lay out to try to undermine the resurrection. Verse 20 continues, look there with me, says, "'There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring, no one to take care of the woman.'" And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the women also died. And now here is their trick question to try to trap Jesus. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. You can imagine how awkward that Christmas card would be in heaven, couldn't you? one woman, seven husbands. For the Sadducees, this scenario seemed to be completely unreconcilable if the resurrection was true. Now, from this passage, it's obvious that Jesus's teachings were going viral. They were making it throughout the empire. Even the Sadducees, the religious leaders, were hearing about the teachings of Jesus. Jesus taught about the resurrection on several occasions. Back in John chapter 5, Jesus says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, talking about the Son of Man, talking about Jesus, and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so Jesus is saying everyone is going to be raised to dead, either to eternal life or to eternal judgment. But then the big proclamation of resurrection comes just a week before the triumphal entry. Jesus gets message that his friend Lazarus is very sick. Jesus does not hurry to go heal Lazarus, but Jesus waits until Lazarus dies. And then as he is going towards Lazarus's tomb, he encounters Lazarus's sister, Martha. And we read in John 11, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Obviously, she was not a Sadducee. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked this question, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection. Do you believe that though you die, you shall live? And then Jesus proves that he is the resurrection by literally raising Lazarus from the dead. As you go on in John chapter 11, the religious leaders hear of this. It is spreading throughout the empire. They get together and they determine that they must put Jesus to death. A matter of fact, and I never noticed this before, but the high priest at that time was Caiaphas, who was a Sadducee. And so he says, it's better that one man die than that the whole nation perishes. And then at the end of John 11, verse 53, it says, so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Why? Because Jesus claimed the resurrection was true, and then he proved it by raising Lazarus from the dead. They refused to believe in the resurrection. They denied it. You know, we may scoff at the Sadducees for not believing in the resurrection, especially in the light of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, but let me ask, do you really believe in the resurrection? Do you really, really, really believe that you will be raised from the dead? We may affirm it with our lips and with our minds and even with our hearts, but does your life proclaim that you believe in the resurrection. You know, I know I often get so caught up in the worries of this world, in the chaos of this world, that I forget that life is but a vapor, that we're here today and gone tomorrow. I forget that eternity of heaven or hell is waiting me and awaiting my friends and my family. If we were more resurrected-minded, wouldn't we be more interested in telling others about the resurrection? If we were more resurrected-minded, wouldn't we get less frustrated with people and our circumstances, which Paul calls light and momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory? If we were more resurrected-minded, wouldn't we be less consumed to grab onto all this world has to give to us and instead be focused on the inheritance that is to come? We may profess to believe in the resurrection But oftentimes, our anxious, fearful, frustrated, defeated attitude communicates something very different. We eat and drink and seek to be merry to suck all of the life out of this world because maybe we don't really believe that the resurrection is true. You've heard of bucket lists. Bucket lists are not a bad thing. But we believe if we do not finish our bucket list by the time we're dying, we're gonna be severely disappointed. And the reason we believe is because do we really believe in the resurrection? If the resurrection is true, if we truly believe in the resurrection, it must affect the way we approach our money, our marriages, missions, our recreation, our politics, our neighbors, and yes, even mercy ministry. Today, we celebrate the ordination of John McKenzie, to become a deacon here at Jacob's Well Church. And deacons are the ones who carry out the mercy ministry of the church to those who are in physical need. And the resurrection must shape our diaconal mercy ministry. I remember several years ago, we were in officer retreat, and we we're watching this video, uh, and officers were elders and deacons. We we're watching this video uh, of this panel discussion of some of the, the best Christian thinkers and Christian pastors and In America, and the moderator asked this question. He said, how do we keep the mercy ministry of the church from becoming a social gospel? In other words, how do we keep it from simply providing for people's physical needs without providing for people's deeper needs, which is their spiritual needs? Several pastors gave an answer, but one cut to the chase. It was John Piper, no surprise. But he said this, the way we don't forsake the gospel in mercy ministry is by believing in hell. That gets your attention, right? He goes on to explain, and I'm paraphrasing, but he goes on to explain, we have to remember that these people we are serving with mercy ministry are going to one Day be raised from the dead and will either go to heaven or go to hell for all eternity. A firm theology of heaven and hell will keep us from simply handing out food cards and purchasing hotel rooms. It will lead us to tell them about their eternal destination and their eternal need of Jesus. And so, John, from this passage, I want to exhort you in your deacon ministry do not forget about the resurrection. It is a person's deepest need to know Jesus because as needy as they are in this world, if they do not have Jesus, it pales in comparison to the misery they will go through for all eternity. You have a privilege to come to people who are in need and tell them about the glory of the resurrection. Do not deny the resurrection. Do not forget the resurrection in your ministry. And so just to recap, we have the denial of the resurrection. The Sadducees denied the resurrection in their theology. Sometimes we deny it in our orthopraxy, living as if this life is all that there is. Second, we have the proof of the resurrection. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong?" Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I love how subtle Jesus is here, right? Like he isn't saying, hey, you know, Sadducees, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. You know, just follow your heart, whatever you want heaven to be. That's whatever you make up in your mind, right? No, Jesus says, you are wrong. (laughs) Later, he adds a little more tact and says, you are quite wrong. You see, Jesus believes that there is truth. As Francis Schaeffer would say, there is true truth, and Jesus believes that the resurrection is true truth, which means these Sadducees are wrong. Anyone who does not believe in a resurrection is wrong, according to Jesus. Now, if that was not offensive enough, Jesus says the reason why these religious experts don't believe in the resurrection is because they don't know their Bible and because they don't know the power of God. Now, if you flip that around, it means that we can know the resurrection is true because of the Bible and because of the power of God. And so let's look at those two things quickly. These two proofs of the resurrection that can make us certain or firm in our belief that the resurrection is coming. First, the scriptures in verse 26. Again, remember the Sadducees only believed that the first five books of the Bible were authoritative and canon, and so Jesus goes to meet them on their ground, okay? Verse 26 And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Again, extremely offensive language. Like, have you not read the Bible? Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? Probably one of the most famous passages in their Bible. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then again, Jesus says, You are quite wrong. Again, the Pentateuch is not explicit about the resurrection, but the Pentateuch does not make sense without the resurrection. That's what Jesus is highlighting here. Now, Jesus' argument is actually trickier for us to understand than we might originally assume. Right here, it seems like Jesus is just arguing from verb tenses, right? Like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had been dead for 400 years, and God says, I am the God of the living, right? Verb tense is present, so I'm the ver- I am the current God of these dead people. But, but verb tenses like this didn't happen in this passage in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Old Testament. And so Jesus' argument is a little bit more nuanced, and we might get a little bit confused in this, but I'm going to try to walk you through it. To understand Jesus' argument, you first need to know that he is referring uh, to, again, one of the pinnacle passages of the Old Testament, in which God first reveals himself to Moses. Moses is, is keeping the flock out in the wilderness of Horeb, and he sees a burning bush that is not being consumed. And so he goes to inspect it, and the Lord calls him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses says, here I am. And then we read this in Exodus 3, verse 5 through 6. It says, then he said, that's the Lord... Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And so this is how God reveals himself to Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's not only the way he reveals himself to Moses, but also to the people of God. It goes on in Exodus 3, verse 15, just down that chapter. It says, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel when you go back to Egypt. The Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's kind of clumsy, but it works and thus i am to be remembered throughout all generations and then verse 16 go and gather the elders of israel together and say to them the lord the god of your fathers the god of abraham of isaac of jacob has appeared to me saying i have observed you i have observed you and what has been done to you in egypt and so here you have in 10 verses when god reveals himself he doesn't only say i am the lord god he says i am the lord the god of abraham Isaac and Jacob. But why does he do this? Why is he so redundant? Why is it so important that these guys who have been dead 400 years are included in the proclamation of his identity? Well, to understand it, we need to know that God had made covenant promises to Abraham and to his son Isaac and to his grandson Jacob. And the covenant promises that God has made is threefold. And we've talked about this before, but they start with the letter P. And they're helpful because they're a way of reading through the rest of the Old Testament. Okay? His three promises is of presence, of property, and of people. Okay? Presence, property, and people. So he promises his presence, that he will be their God, that he will not leave them or forsake them. He promises them a people that they, from Abraham and Sarah, who's barren at this time, that they will become a great nation of people, which happens in Egypt as they multiply and multiply and multiply, but also a property, a promised land that they are destined for, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so God makes these promises to the people that Moses is going to minister through their patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what Jesus is getting at here is that God's promises are not temporary. They are forever. Because God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. Commentator William Lane puts it this way. Again, I know this is hard to kind of understand, but for them it was clearer. But this is what William Lane says. He says, if God had assumed the task of protecting the patriarchs from misfortune during the course of their life, but fails to deliver them from that supreme misfortune, which marks the definitive and absolute check upon their hope, his protection is of little value. It is inconceivable that God would provide for the patriarchs some partial tokens of deliverance and leave the final word to death, of which all the misfortunes and suffering of human existence are only a foretaste. If the death of the patriarchs is the last word of their history, there has been a breach of the promise of god guaranteed by the covenant and of which the formula the god of abraham of isaac and of jacob is the symbol here's what jesus is saying and we see this even in fuller effect in the book of hebrews is that the promises that god made to abraham and isaac and jacob and to their descendants and to the people of god were only partially given in this world and they see their fuller extent in the world to come in the resurrection. So God promises his presence that he will never leave them or forsake them, but he will be supremely present in the resurrection. He promises them a property, which is the land of Israel, a land flowing with milk and honey. But the greater promised land, as Hebrews says, that that Moses was looking forward to is the promised land that is in heaven. And the people that God promises is not only the nation of Israel, but in heaven are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob only meet their fulfillment in part in this world, but meet their full and expanded completion in heaven. Remember, Jesus was coming to these Sadducees on their grounds. He was arguing only from the first five books of the Old Testament. But if you look beyond the first five books of the Old Testament, there are many more passages that are much clearer about the resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, verse two says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting content. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. And then of course, Job 19, he says, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. As the scripture progresses, there is more and more clarity, more and more evidence, more and more, more and more of God's word telling us about the hope of the resurrection. And then we get to First Corinthians 15, and it says this, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, and by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. And so we have the proof of the resurrection from the scriptures. Yes, it's not explicit in the Pentateuch, but the Pentateuch does not make sense without the resurrection, but it is without doubt, in the rest of the scriptures. The second proof of the resurrection is experiential. It is the power of God. Verse 24 in our passage today, if you look there with me, it says, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The Greek word for power in this passage is the word dunamis, which we get the word dynamite from. Dynamite is powerful. It is explosive. It can split a stone in two. It can bring down a skyscraper. And the power of God is so powerful that it can create the universe. It can recreate the universe, but it is even so powerful that it can raise dead men to life. First Corinthians 6 says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his dunamis, by his power. We don't only experience the power of God when we die and he raises us physically from the dead, but we also experience the power of God in this life as he brings our souls from spiritual death to spiritual life. Jesus in Acts 1.8, before he ascends into heaven, says to his disciples, you will receive power. You will receive dunamis. This is true for you, Christian. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so one proof, that God has power to raise our dead bodies is that he has already raised our dead souls. We have already experienced some of the power of God when we were born again, when we came to faith in Christ. We went from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that same power that raised Lazarus from the dead and that raised Jesus from the dead and that raised your soul from the dead will raise your physical body from the dead. Let me illustrate it like this. Behind this curtain somewhere... Back there, we have a lift, you know, that thing with a basket and scissors that, that go up. And so I remember the first time we brought the lift down and put it, I think, right about there, because we had to change some light bulbs. And I'm looking at this lift and I'm thinking about uh, how much I weigh, okay? And, and I'm not discouraged about that. It's just like, do I meet the weight limitations on this thing? Cause I'm not the skinniest guy here, right? And so I'm looking at the lift, and I'm like, can it handle me? Can it raise me up? Let's try it out, right? So I jump in and hook the thing up and I start going up and it's clank 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 right and 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 indeed it does raise me up to the ceiling where I can change a light bulb. If I ever have to use the lift again, I'm going to have a lot of confidence in the power of that lift to raise me up because it's already done it once. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? You can know You can know that God has the power to raise you from physical death because he has already raised you from spiritual death. And this is the proof that you need. It is in the word of God. It is even in your own experience if you have come to faith in Christ. And so we have the denial of the resurrection, the proofs of the resurrection, which is the word of God and the power of God active in our lives. Finally, we have the glory of the resurrection. Verse 24 again. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, speaking of the woman and her seven husbands, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now upon first reading of this, we might feel discouraged. What? There's no marriage in heaven? That doesn't sound so glorious, right? Marriage is one of the most wonderful gifts that God has given to us. It is the most intimate human relationship, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. It is really the crown of human connection. Marriage is the relationship that all young adults yearn for and long for and seek for. And so if there is no marriage in heaven, If there is no romance in heaven, if there's no uh, marital, physical intimacy in heaven, maybe I don't want to go to heaven. Maybe heaven isn't all that great. But in fact, what Jesus is telling us is that the absence of marriage in heaven does not show us how bad the resurrection, but how glorious it is. Because what Jesus is telling us is that the very most wonderful, most blessed things in this life, including a glorious, intimate, wonderful, pleasurable marriage, is only a dim shadow of the glory that is to come. Let me illustrate this way. Uh, you know, we, my kids grew up in Green Bay, which is, you may have heard, the greatest city in America to live in, right? And so um, I'm not sure who, who said that, but, but it is a great city to live in. And one of the things we loved growing up here was Triangle Hill in the winter, uh, when it used to snow in the winter. It was great. And what we loved about it is that we could go there, we could go tubing, but we could also go skiing, and we could go snowboarding, and it had the tow rope that you didn't have to walk up the hill, you could just grab onto the tow rope, take you up the hill, you could go skiing, snowboarding, do some jumps, and all those sort of fun things. I have a cousin who lives in Colorado, and she has a home in Denver, and in Vail, and in Breckenridge. She has season passes to ski wherever she wants in the Rocky Mountains anytime she wants to. Now, imagine if I were talking to her on the phone and I said, hey, you like skiing, right? Boy, do I have a treat for you. We have this place you can ski and it's called Triangle Hill. It is the best ski hill in Green Bay. And there's a tow rope that takes you up, so you have to walk. It's like 70 yards long. It's amazing, right? There's little bumps you can jump off. It's great. You should come to Green Bay. Come and enjoy our ski hill. She'd probably say to me, sorry, I don't do ski hills. And in Colorado, we don't have ski hills. And imagine if I respond saying, no ski hill in Colorado, that sounds awful. I'd never wanna to go to Colorado because they don't have any ski hills. Friends, ski hills are great. They are a gift from God for us to enjoy, but they are no comparison to the Rocky Mountains. It is a whole new world that we could not even imagine if it was not for photography or for videos. The very best things in this life, like a great marriage, wonderful friendships, as wonderful they are as they are, they're only ski hills compared to the glory that awaits us in heaven. If you're tempted to think that you need to check off all your bucket list items to be happy when you go to heaven, Jesus would say to you, You are quite wrong. For as it is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared. For those who love him. Now, what is it that makes heaven so great? Remember what Jesus said in verse 26 through 27. He says, God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see, what makes heaven so spectacular is who is there to greet you. In heaven, You will fully experience the presence of God in a way that you never have before in your entire life. Just yesterday, I saw a friend post on his Facebook feed, uh, he and his wife went to a country music concert and they saw this celebrity and they went to go meet him. They're so nervous and excited and she actually started crying because it was so wonderful. He's like, should I be worried about my wife? She's crying over this guy, but not over me, right? Like, it's a great question. Have you ever met a celebrity and you just kind of be nervous and anxious and kind of like, whoo, right? Like kind of built up a little bit. Multiply that by a billion, and that's what it's going to be like when you see Jesus. It will blow your mind. At funerals, people will often say things like, oh, now Larry is reunited with his brother Tom, and the love of his life, Susie, his wife who passed away. Is that true? Probably, if they all trusted in Jesus. But what I can tell you is that regardless of what people say at funerals, Tom and Susie and Larry are not going to be preoccupied with one another. They're going to be preoccupied with Jesus. That is who they are there to see. That is where their ultimate joy and satisfaction comes from. And so kids and adults, if you wonder, will my dog be in heaven? To be honest with you, I don't know. But guess what? Jesus will be there. And that's who your heart longs for every day of your life, whether you know it or not. I love the C.S. Lewis quote where he says, If, if nothing in this world satisfies your soul, doesn't it show you that you were made for another world? We were made for Jesus. And you can be resurrected into life with Jesus if you believe that he has taken your sins upon himself, that he traded in his glory for the shame of the cross, that he died on your behalf, that he rose on the third day, that he ascended into glory, and that he is coming back in power to create a new heavens and a new earth that will be complete joy forever and for always. That is the glory of the resurrection. You can't even imagine. imagine what you want of heaven, it's going to be better. That's what the Bible tells us. Let me end with this. At, at our annual meeting, I uh, got in a little bit of trouble, not too much trouble. You guys are pretty nice to me, but we had all the elders up here, and we wanted to introduce ourselves and share what we like about being elders, and so they went around and shared what they like about being elders and pastors, and then it was my turn, and I said, hey, you know, hey, I'm Pastor Dan, and One of my favorite parts of being a pastor is conducting funerals, and then I think I said something along the lines of, someday I hope to bury you, something like that, right? And uh, easily could be misunderstood, right? Uh, One one young family now affectionately calls me the pastor who's going to dance on their grave. That's what they say. And and the reality is, um, at your funeral, I won't be the one dancing. You will be, if you trust in Jesus, Because if the resurrection is true, which Jesus says it is and has proved it is through the power of his Holy Spirit, then the Christian funeral is a sacred and glorious event in which we consider the most important things of eternity as we hand people over to Jesus. We grieve the loss of a loved one, but the loved one is not grieving at all. They are in complete happiness and joy. Pastor Jim Ferguson at the church I used to serve at used to say, if you could go and offer that person a million dollars to come back into this world, they would say, no way, Jose. Because the resurrection is true and it's the glory that our heart longs for and the presence of our Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that we can be confident in the resurrection. Lord, may we live our life as those who are convinced of the resurrection. May we be willing to die for our faith, knowing that just on the other side of death is resurrected glory, that to die is gain. May we live generously with our finances, with our time, knowing that this is a light and momentary affliction, but the glory of heaven is yet to come. Help us, Lord, to believe in the resurrection, not only in our head, not only in our hearts, but also by the way that we live our life. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.